Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. And have heard many times, probably from the, your earliest memories of Sundays, from a non-church background or tradition, you still heard this story as a kid because it's one of those stories. It's right up there with the, like the top ten um, possibly when it comes to uh, Old Testament Bible stories in particular. Um, so I'm going to actually read the whole story for you this morning and I'm not going to make any apologies for that. It's the whole of Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. <laughs> well, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but I'm going to, I'm going to work through the whole passage because I actually think it's really important that we hear this whole chapter, if you like, uh, in a new and fresh way. Does that kind of make sense? Because, you know, I say this all the time. We hear these stories, we grow up with them, we know them so well that we forget to hear them when we hear them. So I'm inviting you again just to hear them with fresh ears as if you've never heard it before. And really, as our brother prayed, inviting you to allow the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, to reveal to you perhaps something you've never heard before or thought about before. And my prayer is that that would be a real blessing. Uh, to you. So I'm going to read it to you in just a moment. If you need to close your eyes to listen, then do that. If it helps to lie on the floor, be my guest. Do whatever it takes to get into a comfortable position of listening. Um, And just try to put yourself in the story as I read it. Try to imagine what it would be like to be there. Try to imagine the sights, the smells, the sounds, and so on. Um, Because this really is a powerful, um, small section of what God has been doing in history, and and I really believe he wants to teach us something new and fresh from it today. At the end of the story, I am going to get you to stand up and stretch your legs and then talk to each other for two minutes. Is that all right? I'm just giving you a prior warning. Um, So that's good. The story goes like this. In the light of humanity's rebellion and separation from God, God's greatest desire was to see creation restored to himself through a people called by his name. And through his promise to Abraham, God raised up the nation of Israel as his people of blessing. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt, only to become the second most powerful person in all the land, except for the king. When a great famine covered all the land around the Mediterranean, Joseph brought his father Jacob and all his brothers and their families and their possessions to live in Egypt. There the Israelites stayed and flourished, living in peace with the Egyptians in the fertile region of Goshen. But it took just one generation for all that to change. And soon they were slaves in a foreign land with no hope of salvation. Their oppression under the Egyptians continued for generation after generation until the day came when God chose a man to rescue his people. His name was Moses. God sent Moses along with his brother Aaron Aaron, to confront Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were instructed to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave and as a show of his strength and power, God performed many miraculous signs through Moses and Aaron. First, God instructed Moses, tell Aaron to take his staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses did, and Aaron's staff turned into a snake. Pharaoh summoned his magicians, who also threw their staffs down, 
which also turned into snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed the other staff. Undeterred, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The following morning, God had Moses turn all the water in the land of Egypt into blood, again working through Aaron's staff, all the water in the River Nile, as well as all the water in the ponds, the reservoirs, and even the drinking water stored in pots and stone jars turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink it. Blood was everywhere. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing. And Pharaoh's heart remained hard towards Moses and all the people. One week later, God instructed Moses to tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up out of the water onto the land. So Aaron did as he was instructed and frogs came up out of the waters and covered the land. But again, Pharaoh summoned his magicians and they did exactly the same thing. Now there were frogs everywhere in their houses, in their beds, in their kitchens, everywhere. So Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, pray to your God and ask him to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let your people go. So Moses prayed and all the frogs died. They were piled up into great heaps and the whole land reeked of the smell of them. And once Pharaoh saw that there was some relief, he hardened his heart even more and did not let the people go. After the frogs came gnats. Everyone was itching and scratching, even the animals. Moses and Aaron, Moses had Aaron strike the ground with his staff, and the dust became a swarm of biting insects that covered the land. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same, but they could not. So they came to Pharaoh and said, Surely this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he would not listen to them. After the gnats came a swarm of flies. The Egyptians' houses were covered in flies. Pharaoh's palace was covered in flies. The ground was covered in flies. Everywhere you looked, there were flies, 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 except in the part of Egypt where the Hebrews lived. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice your God here in the land. But Moses replied, Well, that wouldn't be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must make a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh replied, I will let you go and offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far, so now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to their Lord. So Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. Again, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the people and would not let them go as he promised he would. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, your donkeys, your camels, and your cattle, and your sheep, and your goats. 
But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Tomorrow, the Lord will do this to your land. And the next day, the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals belonging to the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Then God instructed Moses, take handfuls of soot and toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. So Moses did just that. He took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. He tossed the soot into the air and at that moment festering boils broke out on all the Egyptian people and their animals. The magicians could not even stand before Moses or Pharaoh because of the boils that were on them. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses or Aaron. Following this, God told Moses to warn Pharaoh that the worst hailstorm ever was coming and that he had better get all his livestock and his people inside. Some Egyptians listened to the warning and took action, but many didn't. And the following day, the entire land of Egypt was devastated by a tremendous storm, the likes of which had never been seen in all the long history of the land. The Lord sent a non-stop barrage of thunder and lightning, and large hailstones rained down, killing many people and animals. It stripped all the leaves from every tree and plant and flattened all the crops that were budding that were nearly ready for harvest. The only place it didn't hail was in the region of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And for a brief moment, Pharaoh considered letting the people go. He summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said. The Lord is right and I and my people are wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail and I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. So Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread his hands out towards the Lord and the thunder and the hail stopped. When Pharaoh had see, saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Sometime after that storm, the Lord told Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. I have done this so that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from this day from the day they settled in this land till now. And then Moses turned and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh's officials came to Pharaoh and they appealed to him, how long will you let this man hold us hostage? They said, 
Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So Moses and Aaron were summoned back to stand before Pharaoh. All right, he told them, go and worship the Lord your God. But who exactly will be going with you? He asked. Moses replied, we will all go, young and old, our sons and our daughters and our flocks and our herds. We must all join together in celebrating the festival to the Lord. Pharaoh retorted, the Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. It will never happen. Only the men may go and worship the Lord, since that is what you actually requested. And then Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all the following night and by morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. The ground was thick and black with them and they devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit on all the trees was gone. Nothing green remained in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once again and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. So Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up all the locusts and carried them out into the Sea of Reeds. Not a locust was left anywhere in all the land of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart even more, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand towards heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky. And a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three whole days. During all that time, the people could not even see each other and no one dared to move. But there was light as usual where the Hebrews lived. Finally, Pharaoh called for Moses, go, go and worship your God, he said, but leave your flocks and herds here. You may even take your little ones with you. No, Moses said, you must provide us with the animals for sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord our God. All our livestock must come with us. Not a hoof can be left behind. We must choose our sacrifices to the Lord our God from among those animals. And even then we won't know how we are to worship the Lord until we get where we are going. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart once more and he would not let them go. Get out of here, he said. Go, I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face again, you will surely die. Very well, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. Now the Lord had already told Moses what he was going to do next. I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave his country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you all to leave. 
Tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbours for articles of silver and gold. So before Moses departed from Pharaoh's presence, he delivered one final message from God to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord God says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl, who grinds flour. Even the firstborn of all your livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And all the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall on the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg me. Hurry and take all your followers with you and only then will I go. And then burning with anger, Moses turned and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Now God had also already told Moses and Aaron how to instruct the people of Israel to be ready for this event. They were required to follow a specific set of plans in preparation for this very night. A carefully selected one-year-old male lamb or goat was to be slaughtered on the 14th day of the month at twilight. They were to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of their houses where they would eat the animal. That same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat everything along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. They were not to eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs and internal organs, had to be roasted over a fire and nothing was to be left till morning. And whatever was not eaten had to be burnt before morning. God also gave these instructions. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, carry your staff in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On this night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am Yahweh. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Once Moses had finished giving these instructions, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. And so it was. On that night, around midnight, The Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were put to death. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and a loud wailing was heard throughout the whole land. There was not a single house where someone or something had not died. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Go. Leave my people and to take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and all your herds as you said and be gone. Go. But bless me as you leave. And all the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible because actually they thought, we're all going to die. 
So the Israelites took their bread dough before yeast was added and they wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. And the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favourably on the Israelites and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for and effectively they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. And that night, the people of Israel left the city of Ramesses and started for Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus women, plus children, plus a rabble of non-Israelites that went with them, plus great flocks and herds of livestock. Wow. Just take a, a couple of minutes. Just Actually, just stand up for a second. Just shake it out. Just shake it out. And then spend a couple of minutes. You can sit again when you're ready. Just spend a couple of minutes talking to someone around you about either something that stood out to you that you hadn't heard before or didn't realise, or maybe something that you wonder about when you think about this story, or perhaps a question that this story raises for you. I'll give you a minute or so to do that, just very quickly. I'm not going to ask anyone to share it. It's just where you are amongst some, the people around you. Uh, have a quick chat about what you heard. Excellent. Thank you. Isn't that good to talk about God's Word? I like it. I love it. I should just let you go. You could probably talk about it for the rest of the day, right? Well, I'm not done. <laughs> the story of God freeing the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt is perhaps, as I said before, one of the best well-known Old Testament stories, right? It's right up there with um, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Noah's Ark, the story of David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. It's one of those kind of well-known ones. It's one of the stories that has a kid's book with pictures and stuff. 
We all know it. Most people in, the, in society would at least know it in concept. But really it's a story about Yahweh hearing the cry of his people, right? A people who are now enslaved in the land of Egypt. And it's about his resolve to set them free and to make them into a nation that belongs to him. It's really a story about redemption and salvation. It's a story about belonging and identity. And I want to kind of explore that a little bit uh, in, the, in the few minutes that we've got left this morning. Um, what is it that this story is really about? And I got to thinking, have you ever asked yourself, because I know I've asked me this question, which is kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing today, why 10 plagues? Why 10? Why didn't he just jump straight to the grand finale and get it over and done with? It would be so much more efficient, right? Blah, 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 gone. That would have got their attention, yes? Well, maybe. Why 10 plagues? I want to suggest to you this morning, and we're going to explore a little bit this morning and again next week, that there are actually two main reasons, um, or two purposes, if you like, behind why God moved in the way he moved. And I guess to be more exact and more, more technically correct, um, Moses records the events in a certain way, and I think the correct way to probably put that is that God or the Spirit of God inspired Moses to record the events in a certain way, in a certain style, for specific reasons. Because he actually wanted to highlight for future generations, as this story was read and retold, God wants to highlight for future generations two significant concepts. Firstly, he wants to show the Israelites that he is indeed God, the one true God. Remember, they've been living in slavery and captivity, although it didn't start like that. They were there by their own kind of things were going good for such a long time. And you can't be fooled into believing that they didn't start to assimilate some of the beliefs and practices of the country where they lived, perhaps even the worship of some of the gods of Egypt, because that's what people do. We, we, we assimilate, we're very good at it. So God wants to reveal to his people, firstly, that he is the one true God and that in doing that, he also wants to reveal himself to the Egyptians, which in this story represent the world, showing that their gods were actually no match for him. In Exodus chapter 7, God says this to Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egypt, this is it. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Also in Exodus 12, we get another glimpse into this first purpose. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. So you can see there in those two statements, and there's a couple of others in this narrative, you might have picked them up, where God is actually saying, this is why I'm doing this. This is the reason behind, one of the reasons behind what I'm doing. So that's the, that's the purpose we're going to explore today, just very briefly. Next week, we're going to take a bit more time to look at the second purpose. And I'm really excited about this idea, about kind of bringing this to you. 
But the second purpose is of there being ten plagues um, is that God wanted to show the Israelites that his plan of salvation actually has its origin in the creation story. And in fact, the story of the defeat of Egypt's gods is what we call a didactic story. And what that simply means is, in other words, it's a story that's intended to teach a truth. It's a story that's intended to highlight a deeper concept, a concept connected with the creation narrative. But that's next week, right? So you'll have to come if you want to hear that. So why ten plagues? Actually, if you were paying attention, you will have rightly noticed that there are actually 11 signs. Although I've only got 10 pictures there, there's actually 11 signs. And plagues is probably not the best word because not all of the events that happened were necessarily a plague. They were kind of a catastrophic event. Um, Locusts is a plague. Sores might be a plague. Um, But I don't know that you could call thunder and lightning a plague. It's kind of like a, a catastrophic event, right? So probably the better word is sign. 11 signs. The first sign being Aaron's staff becoming a snake. Do you remember that? And this is actually a very interesting sign because it actually sets the stage for everything that's about to happen. The symbol... Let's have that next photo up. The symbol of Pharaoh's divine power is the, is the golden emblem that he wears on his head. You will have seen, like funerary masks of the pharaohs, it's all gold and inlaid with jewels and there's often a cobra sticking out the front. Well, here's a version of that in a a statue. This is a statue from the cities of Ramesses where the story takes place. We're not 100% sure which pharaoh this is. There's a lot of argument about it and I'm not going to waste any time going into that, but possibly one one of the Ramesses, that era. And you can see in the centre of his head there's a a cobra, a serpent, in the strike position. This is the symbol of power for, for the pharaoh. And the idea being that the serpent is ready to strike at his enemies. It will spit fire and destroy all who try to come against. It's the king's symbol, the pharaoh's symbol. So it's actually a very interesting sign that God starts with, right? When you think about it in that context, okay? When Aaron threw his staff, you can go back to the other one. When Aaron threw his staff, thank you, to the ground, it turned into a snake. But the royal magicians were also able to replicate the same thing with their staffs. And what's interesting, though, of course, is that Aaron's staff swallows all the other staffs, thus foreshadowing the events that are about to take place. It's prophetic, really, in its nature. And, of course... This uh, display of power fails to impress Pharaoh and he refuses to listen to Moses and Aaron and that sets in motion God's plan. It's also interesting to note that the Egyptian magicians were able to perform this sign and it says in the text, by their secret arts. And again, there's a lot of debate about this. What is is the exact meaning of this phrase? And it's not even 100% clear. But there's some very strong support, some very strong textual evidence that implies that this is a supernatural power that they are using. In other words, it's not a well-practiced illusion like a card trick. Although that was one of the tricks that magicians could perform in the ancient Near East, this was not that, but rather a show of power derived from a supernatural connection to a spiritual entity. I don't know, what would we call that today? Black magic? Dark magic? Well, 
when you also take into account that we are dealing with an ancient Near East culture, which was an honour and shame culture, where a person or group's reputation was of uttermost importance, Pharaoh's headstrong response to Yahweh sets up a competition between their names, their nations and their reputations. And in a very dramatic display of snake wrangling, Aaron's snake eats all the others. It says something, doesn't it? It says something about the conflict that's about to happen. But Pharaoh doesn't care. Yahweh has attached his reputation, if you want to put it in this terms, Yahweh has attached his reputations to Israel's. So he commits to protecting them at all costs. And this demonstration of power, which actually has echoes of a previous encounter, when you think about it, you know, serpents, God defeating serpents. Yahweh meets the serpent all over again, but this time in the form of a pharaoh who won't acknowledge him as the one true God. And I think that helps to explain when we think about it, in part, why the following ten plagues that we're about to look at seem so harsh. Because, you know, in our sensitised Western way of thinking, we think, oh, those poor people, you know, what, that's not a God of love, a God of hate and destruction, killing and murdering people, what about all the babies? I get that. But you have to step back and look at this passage of Scripture and this story from a spiritual perspective. This is a, this is a heavenly realm battle, not just an earthly one. Does that make sense? I'm not being unsympathetic to the realities of what happened. I'm just helping us to be mature thinkers and step back and look at what's actually going on. This is like a battle of the titans, a battle of the gods, and it's played out in the earthly realm. And it's got a lot to teach us. Turning water into blood. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. The first plague, turning the Nile River into blood, was a judgment against possibly the Egyptian gods Happy, which was... Happy, happy, I don't know, the god of the Nile, Isis, goddess of the Nile, and, and Kunum. I'm just going to make these names up, all right? <laughs> Kunum, guardian of the Nile. We know that because we read it from the text that God says that this is a judgment against the, the ancient Egyptian gods. Which ones exactly? Because there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of them. They had such a pantheon of gods, it's not funny. And those gods changed throughout the centuries. This is the Middle Kingdom age, the um, Ramesses age, and some of their gods were different to the age before, and some of those gods were different to the age after. There was even one pharaoh that decided they'd only worship one god, and that only worked for the time that he was pharaoh. And then they went, no, blow you, we're all going back to thousands of gods. Some of the gods ate other gods and intermarried, and it changes, it changes. We don't really know. We're just using our best kind of guess here, but we're working off the principle that it says in the story that God himself said, I am going to bring judgment against the gods of Israel. So perhaps this is the gods that he's talking about. Remember, the Nile is also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. And the river, which formed the basis of daily life in Egypt and underpinned the national economy, was absolutely devastated by this event. 
Millions of fish died in the river and the water smelled so bad it was unusable. And Pharaoh was actually told, by this you will know that I am Yahweh. Now I know that there are a lot of scholars out there who will say, well, maybe it was a natural event, maybe there was a giant earthquake somewhere and you can actually say that there's a whole chain of events, ash fell from the sky, because that can happen. The river, it can rain like in uh, middle Africa or wherever the Nile starts and all this red dirt can wash down. It actually looks like it's turned to blood and of course then there's no oxygen in the water and the fish die. Because the fish died, the frogs had nothing to eat, so they left. There is that argument, right? But the text doesn't support that. The text implies that it happened there and then. I, I can't argue with that. I'm not, I'm not really a scholar. I'm just a try-hard, trying hard <laughs> to understand what's going on here. I've got to take the story at its face value. But whatever happened was devastating, right? It was devastating. And actually, if you care to read the story that happens just before this, you might recall that when Moses asked, when God asked Moses to go to, to, to you know, confront Pharaoh, Moses was like, Ooh, you know, blithering mess, didn't know what to do. God said, I'll give you some signs to perform. You know, the, the, you can throw, I can give you some signs to perform to your own people to prove that it's me that's sending you. Do you remember that? Throw your staff down, it will become a snake. Put your hand in your cloak, it will become leprous. Pull it out, put it back, it'll become... And one of the other signs was, take a bucket of water out of the Nile and pour it on the ground, it will become blood. Don't tell me that was a volcano. <laughs> Right? Do you get what I'm going with this? Good. The Egyptian magicians, but, were able to replicate the sign using their magic arts. And again, Pharaoh was unfazed. Fair enough. Frogs, the second plague. Bringing frogs from the Nile was a judgment against the god Heket, the frog-headed goddess of fertility, water and renewal. The frogs came up from the river and were in their houses, in their food, in their clothing, in every place possible. It's disgusting. And from the greatest to the least, not one, eat, one, not one Egyptian escaped the plague of frogs. Can you even think about it? There's a medieval painting which depicts this scene and the frogs are like this big. <laughs> Again, Pharaoh's magicians were able to bring more frogs out of the river. Like that was going to help, right? <laughs> I think that's amazing. There's some really funny scenes in this story. They were able to bring more frogs out of the river, but only Moses was able to make them go away. And he prayed to the Lord and the frogs died. And their stinking bodies were heaped up in offensive smelling piles all through the land. Have you ever smelled a dead frog? I'll spare you the details, but we had one at work recently. <clears throat> horrendous it's about i don't know what frogs eat mm. flies if only they'd come a bit later what about gnats what on earth is a gnat seriously gnat that's the girl that makes my coffee at my local coffee place hey gnat i'll have a long black no what is a gnat well i don't know some bibles say lice some translations say lice um, but really, the word translated as gnat could be any small biting insect. So it could be lice, could be sandflies, could be mosquitoes. We don't really know. We just know that they were annoying. So the third plague was a judgment perhaps on Geb, the earth god, or possibly Set, the god of the desert. And unlike the previous plagues, the magicians were unable to duplicate this one. And so they ran to Pharaoh and declared, surely this is the finger of God. Now, I don't know if they meant the God or just a God, but really what they're saying is this, we can't do this. 
we have no power given to us that is able to create insects out of dust. This is actually a creation miracle. A bit like the one Jesus did when he turned water into wine with grapes that weren't even in season. It's a God-only thing, right? They couldn't do it. The magicians were unable to duplicate it. And whatever they were, these small, biting insects caused untold misery and discomfort all through the land. You know what it's like when you go to the beach and you get attacked by sandflies. When you go out to the bush and you can't... You've got to go like this because there's 10 million flies flying around. You don't... <laughs> Imagine that, but with insects that bite. Ooh, are you shivering? <laughs> Bring out the air guard, I say. Oh, Flies. Here we go. The fourth plague, flies. It's actually very interesting because it doesn't necessarily relate to one of the gods of Egypt per se. But what is interesting about flies in Egyptian culture is what they represent. This is going to sound really weird, but people actually wore fly necklaces. Not with dead flies on them, not like you know, horrendous your, your ten-year-old boys make, but um, <laughs> gold fl- make flies made out of gold or precious stones, and they wore them as amulets and necklaces around their neck because it was believed that the the wearer of a fly amulet would be protected from insect bites and would ward off pesky flying creatures. That would have been really handy one plague back, right? (laughs) And even more bizarrely, in Egyptian culture, large fly-shaped pendants made from pure gold, can can you imagine it, were also given to officials as a reward for military achievements. What? Why flies? Well, as one ancient manuscript kind of humorously states, because even a single fly can feel like an unbeatable enemy. We've all been there, haven't we? (laughs) Swift and persistent. And you won't soon forget the misfortune of getting caught in a swarm of flies. But what's most significant about this plague, I think, is that for the first time, God clearly distinguishes between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Because no swarm of flies bothered the areas where the Israelites lived. And this had the effect of causing Pharaoh to try um, to negotiate the bargaining terms with, with Moses and Aaron. But to be fair, his motive was purely, I think, selfish, to get Moses to get rid of the flies. And of course, once they were gone, Pharaoh relented and hearted his heart towards God even more. The fifth plague, the death of livestock, was a judgment on the goddess Hathor and possibly the god Apis, who were both depicted as cattle. As with the previous plague, God protected his people and animals from the plague. Sorry, he protected his people's animals from the plague, while the livestock of the Egyptians uh, became sick and many died. However, for the first time, we see God providing a warning an offer of the chance to repent. But Pharaoh refused. God was steadily destroying the Egyptian economy while showing his ability to protect those and provide for those who obeyed him. This was about who he is and what he is able to do. Pharaoh even sent investigators to find out if the Israelites were suffering along with the Egyptians, but of course they weren't, so he hardened his heart even more. The sixth plague boils, even the word gives you shivers, boils, 
was a judgment against those gods connected to health and well-being, of which there were many. So perhaps um, Sekhmet or Sunu, or predominantly Isis, the goddess connected to funerary rites, motherhood, protection, and magic cures. Interestingly, this plague came unannounced, and it was a direct attack on the Egyptian people themselves. However, it was the effect that it had on the priests and magicians that's most significant, because it really caused the royal Egyptian court some big problems. Because now, because now they were covered in infectious boils, they were all ceremonially unclean. And so they couldn't perform their ritualistic duties, either for the pharaoh or for the people. There were so many cultures which have a similarity in the way they operate in their cultic worship practice. The, the necessity of priests who are declared clean and, and holy they're the only ones that you could go to to be made well or to have an incartation put on you or whatever it is. They're the only ones that could offer prayers to the gods for your well-being. And now the people couldn't even go to the priests because the priests, it says in the story, not even the priests could stand. And that's literally, not even they could stand before Pharaoh. In fact, the only two people who could literally stand before Pharaoh were Moses and Aaron. What a statement. This was a clear sign to the people and to Pharaoh. Actually, I'll restate that. This was a clear sign to the people that Pharaoh, along with all the other gods, were actually powerless against the God of Israel. Right? They're beginning to get the picture, aren't they? You'd think. Before God sent the last three plagues, Pharaoh is given a special message from God. These plagues would be more severe than all the others. And they were actually designed to convince Pharaoh um, and the people that there there is no other God on earth like me. That's the nature of these next three plagues. It was a real serious message. And as an example of his grace, God warned Pharaoh, actually, to gather his livestock and servants in from the fields to shelter from the coming storm. That's an interesting point, right? God actually warns them. I'm sending this. It's going to kill people. Get them in sheltered. Because he actually says, you know what? I'm going to do it tomorrow. So there was plenty of warning. Some of Pharaoh's servants heeded the warning and brought in their animals and their servants. Many did not. So the seventh plague, hail, was a direct result. Uh, it's a direct assault on Nut, the sky goddess. And it's also an assault on Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Set, who is not only the god of the desert, but he's also the storm god. This hail was like Nothing else that had ever been seen ever in all the history of the land of Egypt. It was accompanied by thunder and lightning um, and everything that was left out in the open was obliterated. Some older translations actually will say that the hail turned to fire and burnt everything. It's a little ambiguous, but we'll just go with utter destruction, right? Because that's what happened. Again, the children of Israel were miraculously protected as no hail damaged anything where they lived. 
The eighth plague seems to be focused again on the gods of Nut, Osiris and Set. The crops destroyed by the hail, this is interesting, the crops destroyed by the hail were flax, which was used to make linen, and barley, which was used to make beer. The food crops, wheat and rye, which actually survived the hail because they hadn't sprouted and weren't in head yet, were now devoured by swarms of locusts. There would be no harvest in Egypt that year. Things were now getting very desperate. And even though Pharaoh's officials implored him, they begged him to concede, he would not. So God sent darkness. And a horrendous darkness that could be felt. Have you ever been down one of those caves down south when they turn the lights out? It's all fun and giggles, right? But imagine living in that for three days. Have you, have you done it? You literally, cannot, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. Well, that was nothing compared to this. This was a darkness so thick and heavy you could feel it. This is really significant. This is a direct assault on perhaps the greatest of all the gods, the sun god, Ra. Yahweh showing that he had total control over the sun itself. Imagine the psychological and religious impact that this event had. A profound impact on the people of Israel, right? Profound, it had to be. You see, darkness was the representation of death and judgment and hopelessness. And by doing this, the God of Israel displayed ultimate power over life and death. The tenth plague, the last plague, the, the death of the firstborn, was actually a judgment against Pharaoh himself. You see, Pharaoh was considered to be the greatest god of them all. Actually, the son of Ra himself manifest in the flesh. So when Yahweh struck down the firstborn sons in all the land of Egypt, Pharaoh lost his own firstborn son. And you might be thinking, well, that's, you know, obviously the connection there is that if he loses his firstborn son, then he's got no heir to the throne. But that's not actually how pharaohs were chosen. Didn't necessarily go to the firstborn son. There's actually a deeper, more powerful reason for this, which isn't immediately clear until you do a bit of research. Pharaoh lost his own firstborn son. And as difficult as that seems, perhaps, to our way of thinking in a modern Western framework, there's a clue in the story as to why this is so significant. In ex back in Exodus 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. <sighs> Hello. The significance of this becomes clear once you understand the importance of the firstborn son in Egyptian culture. 
The firstborn of the Egyptians, you see, belonged to their gods. That included both people and animals. Not unlike other cultures, very common practice actually. The firstborn of the Egyptians belonged to their gods. So when God takes the firstborns of the Egyptians away, what he's really doing is executing the ultimate judgment against the gods of Egypt. Because it was the firstborns who were supposed to connect the heavenly with the earthly. And if there were none left to perform that duty, then who were the gods? There was no power because there was no one left to intermediate. It's a powerful statement, right? You can come up if you want, Andrew. And of course, the sacrifice of the lamb and the shedding of its blood and the salvation that comes through Yahweh's plan as we know, is fully realised in the giving of his own firstborn son. Yeah? Jesus. Next week, I'm really excited about next week. I hope you get excited about it too. Um, Next week, you're going to explore an amazing connection between the ten plagues in Egypt and the Genesis creation narrative. You see, in Genesis, God creates. In Exodus, he decreates in order to recreate. But that's next week, right? We'll see you then. Father, we thank you for your word. It's powerful, it's exciting, it's meaningful. It's humbling. my prayer that as we meditate on this passage, as we reread it, as we think about it, as we talk about it amongst ourselves, that by your spirit you might help us to see and understand what it is that you're actually saying to us as your people today. Because there's a lot of truth in here about who you are and how you operate and what you do. And if nothing else, is the wonderful truth that you are for your people. You are for your people. You are fighting for us in the heavenlies. And actually we stand before you as ones who are already victorious because you've already won that battle. And I guess in one sense you're really just mopping up for us. So thank you. May this story be a real blessing to you this week. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. If you'd like prayer, um, there's some wonderful people here who can pray for you. I don't know what it is that you might want prayer for today. I don't know how this story has touched you. I'm praying that it has we could even be didactic about